Okay, welcome to the Near Memo episode eight. It's March 26th, Friday, March 26th. And all the days still continuing to bleed into one here. And uh, as always, it's uh, David Mim and Mike Blumenthal and me, Greg Sterling. And we're going to be talking about the news of the week. Although uh, one big change this week, Greg, is your hat. Yes, this is my, this is, as I said to you earlier, this is in honor of the congressional hearings where Jack Dorsey appeared with uh, Sundar Pichai and um, Mark Zuckerberg. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm striving to emulate him in, 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 you know, in my life in many ways. I'm Are you going to move to Africa? Move to Africa. That's what yeah. I was about to say. You know, that's, I'm, that's on the on the roadmap for me. <laughs> okay, so I think David is up first with the big story of the week. Well, at least for the three of us, I think. Uh, so Ram Fishkin published his quasi-annual report on the number of zero-click searches. Uh, from Google or the percentage of zero click searches from Google, which is up to almost two thirds across both mobile and desktop and over three quarters, 77% uh, on mobile. We should note, uh, as you did, I think in your piece, Greg, for near media that zero click doesn't necessarily mean zero click. It means that the clicks stay on Google uh, or that the user gets the information they're looking for uh, just from the search. So, uh, Huge, huge increase in that uh, in that number. The methodology did change uh, versus the last time that Rand ran this survey, which was one of Google's criticisms in their very direct response to him. Uh, pretty, pretty surprising to see Danny Sullivan uh, on a Google company blog responding directly to this story, uh, which certainly makes me think that uh, Google is taking the uh, scrutiny even more seriously with the ongoing antitrust investigation by the DOJ. Uh, I thought Google's response was incredibly disingenuous. Uh, it essentially criticized, or it didn't even criticize, it highlighted others' criticism of RAND's methodology and simply said that they were uh, sending more traffic through clicks to the open web every year without addressing the percentage of, of clicks they were sending. So I thought it was uh, a, a non a non denial or a, a denial of a non denial, I guess I would or, say, or what you might call an ad hominem attack of sorts. You know, kind of uh, addressing you know Rand rather than the underlying issue. Although it does, I think, to some degree, there is nothing intrinsically wrong. I mean, certainly Google is a monopoly, but there is nothing illegal about them using their search engine the way they want to use their search engine under current law. Now, again, it may, because they are monopoly, maybe it requires scrutiny, but but for the most part, they're doing what's in their self-interest, which is how capitalism Good for good or bad well, works. And, and, and in fact, there was a one of the cases in the long case history of uh, ranking lawsuits uh, that said, I think it was King is the name of the case, I don't remember specifically, that, uh, you know, Google is, a, is essentially a publisher that can order things and display things in whatever way it wants. And that's part of its First Amendment speech, you know, I mean, that was rendered a few years ago. And so now in the light of all the antitrust stuff, it might be a different story, but basically just supporting what you're saying in a sense. What I did find fascinating was just the numbers that they used, that Danny Sullivan used, because it, 
they don't elucidate local search that often. They noted that it drove more than 4 billion connections, local search did, including more than 2 billion visits to websites, which means that 50% or so end up staying on, on Google for driving directions, phone calls, food ordering reservations, and that they connect people to more than 120 million local businesses without websites, which also elucidates this question of how many local businesses are there because of 120 million don't have websites globally and they have 200 million entities. We can now establish that there are somewhere in the order of 150 or 160 million local businesses in their global database. So both interesting factoids to me. Well, the question in my mind is how much of the zero click activity, if that's not an oxymoron, is really focused on local? I mean, that's, that's what one would infer that a substantial amount of it is really about Google My Business and interacting with Google, you know, the, the data there. Yes, and this is something that local has been dealing with as a practice for close to 10 years. We're not, it's not new in the, in the local space. All the people in local expected have de developed protocols and processes around it and and have used the opportunity to change their metrics from ranking to conversions, which I think in the end is probably a valuable change on the part of the SEO community, finally. You know, 10 years late, but better late than never. Before we move right. on, before we move right. on, I want to come back to something David said about the, the antitrust stuff. And listen, go ahead, David. You were going to say something else. Well, I was no, just I mean, going to say, I was just going to say, it's interesting. It's interesting to see both Google and Facebook uh, in light of antitrust scrutiny sort of hiding behind the, the uh, macro good guy of the small business, right? That, that Google is, is defending its zero click behavior by highlighting all the direct connections to small businesses, which as an aside, I fully support. Uh, I think it's that, that that component of zero click search, um, I think does benefit uh, small businesses in the end, as opposed to sending them, sending those clicks to somewhere like Yelp or other places where it's, they might have to continue to pay for visibility. Exactly. So. I mean, that's the kind of paradox of all of this is that we decry the sort of the dominance of Google on the one hand, but they are they are sort of cutting out the middleman, which has always been a very dubious proposition from a small business standpoint. So I think there's, you know, they, they it's a very kind of double-edged thing. I mean, I just want to say one quick thing about the antitrust piece. To your point about why, why Danny responded to it directly, because this is really one of the single most damaging statistics that exists for Google from an antitrust standpoint, I think. You know, the idea that two thirds at the highest level of the narrative, you know, it's just very powerful, very potent. Uh, two thirds of web traffic stays on Google and doesn't go to other other sites is really damaging uh, from a, just a PR standpoint, I think. And that's what I said. I thought in, on Twitter that the one of the first um, actions that the DOJ might take is to compel D Google to reveal its own version of this number, which Danny absolutely did not in his response uh, on the Google corporate blog. So uh, I would say if you have a problem with the, the data, don't dispute, don't, don't point to others' criticism of the methodology, come back with your own apples to apples set of facts on what that data is uh, presenting, so. Okay, now on to you with, um, well, no, it's actually Mike. It's actually Mike, sorry. You, this was you, it's on to Mike now with 
reviews and defamation. So what caught my eye was the uh, state of Michigan Court of Appeals that I think Eric Goldman highlighted. And I went and read the rulings around uh, Stephen Gersten, Michigan Auto Law, where Michigan Auto Law had some, a competitor apparently, or at least they claimed it was a competitor, left probably up to three one-star ratings. In the lower courts, it was categorically dismissed that it wasn't defamatory, that a rating could not be defamatory by its nature, that it was an opinion and couldn't be anything else. They took it to an appeals court. The appeals court affirmed the lower court ruling, said that the rating a rating can't be defamatory, even if it's from a competitor and meant for malicious purposes. And I, uh, they also stated that every consumer understood that reviews at Google were not objective fact, but were just opinions. And I thought several, there was a, a minority opinion that stated that there was case law that supported the idea that just because it was opinion, didn't isolate it totally from defamation. They felt they had used the wrong case law in deciding. Um, I, I thought it set several dangerous precedents. One is that if you do have a ratings attack, which is very common in Google these days, is there no, and, and it is precipitated by a, a competitor who's trying to ruin your reputation, is there no recourse? given that any rating is not is just an opinion and is protected by First Amendment. So I thought that was kind of dangerous. And I thought the assumption that consumers all understand that it's just opinion is not true. I think when consumers look at Google's aggregate rating numbers, they take that as a relatively important assignation of quality. And so I think there are subtleties that weren't addressed. And I think it opens up dangerous precedents in terms of not reining in the abuses in the review space. I would agree with both of those statements, Mike. I think um, we've seen data historically, not specific to reviews, but specific to the quality of location information. Greg, I think Uberall might even have published this years ago uh, around the, the damage to brand value uh, from bad uh, nap information essentially, and consumers do not blame the search engine uh, where that bad information appears, they blame the business. And so there's this notion that that Google is essentially infallible and information that Google presents is is factual. Um, so I agree with that, Mike. And, and I think, yeah, it definitely opens up a potential sort of DDoS style um, competitive one-star rating abuse uh, that we haven't seen a ton of uh, be widespread, but the, the ruling certainly makes it harder to rein that stuff in over time because Google clearly isn't doing anything about it themselves. All right, well, Greg, so now you as a lawyer have to defend the First Amendment rights of a rating only. Well, uh, okay, so so unlike you, I didn't spend time reading the opinions verbatim, but I think, um, I think you do need to cast a broad net about um, when people are expressing opinions, I mean, it would chill reviews if you could sue for defamation every time you got a bad review. But that that has been uh, denied by courts consistently. The 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 problem. I largely agree with what you're saying. I think that that you know. I think consumers do understand that there's a collection of opinions behind these ratings, but in the aggregate, I think they do take on uh, a quality of fact and. What Google, what, what the court seems to be doing is kind of punting because I think there should have been an opportunity for the plaintiff 
to prove that the rating was from a competitor and there was a intent to, and there was an intent to defame. And I think that that should have gone forward if you can prove it, where you've got a malicious intent and you've got a competitor who's not a customer doing this, then there should be some legal recourse. Now it's all up to Google and review flagging and moderation. And, you know, Google, it becomes essentially this sort of, uh, you know, like, uh, like the company town, right. Where the, where the, there's no legal authority. It's really just all about Google. And so there will be some um, people running around with impunity, seeing what they can get away with, I think. Right. Yeah, they were denied discovery in the lower court. That's why it went to appeal. They were yep. not given any opportunity for discovery. So I think at what point does, you know, uh, uh, at what point does it, should it engender the right to go to discovery? I mean, at a default basis, it makes sense. It's protected speech, but at some point it becomes abusive. And well, I mean, this ties in actually with a great long article uh, that I read a couple of weeks ago by Ann Applebaum and a co-author whose name unfortunately escapes me on the Atlantic about the implication of anonymous uh, or, or the, the implications of anonymous digital media usage on democracy. And this is kind of, you know, this isn't sort of rising to the level of a threat to democracy, but sort of the same thing where you can have anonymous uh, anonymous aggregate opinions sort of feeding on themselves and, and presenting as fact uh, in a search result. I mean, and, we would I hope if that Go Sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. No, we, I just wonder if that's the remedy. We would hope that in that most people are good. This is like a human nature question. You know, most people are good. Most people are going to be honest. And you're only going to get a, a very small number. If you build up your reviews and you have a sort of an ongoing program, you're, you, you know, you may have a few of those, but it's not going to drag you down. You know, hopefully people are honest and not going to do that. But but the the most common I think the most common kind of review fraud is a business writing a positive review or soliciting friends and family to write positive reviews for themselves. And then I think number two is the competitor scenario, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I just started reading the FTC uh, researchers report on do bad businesses get good reviews, evidence from online review. I just was reading it in depth. So maybe if, if I can... I may even write a blog post on it, Craig, just in, very good. To, All right. to, yep. to beat you to the punch here. You got to be really careful about what you say in front of me, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like a child in that way. It, um, it's okay. I, right, need, so, I need someone to crack the whip occasionally. All right. So, so I need to crack the whip on myself here. But um, so the third, the third thing, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Uh, one thing that we won't talk about is just the pent-up spending that looks like it's waiting to be unleashed, which is pretty interesting. There are two pieces on that basically recently. But I want to talk about Yahoo. So Verizon came out and said, we're going to build a bunch of new subscription revenue products, and we're going to rebrand most of our or substantially all of our consumer media properties with the Yahoo brand. And I thought that was really fascinating. And many of these will be Yahoo Plus, Yahoo Mail Plus, Yahoo, Yahoo Finance Plus. So I guess there'll be some tiered approach with some freemium kind of thing. Um, but, but what's most interesting to me, there's two things that are interesting about this. One yeah, is- Yahoo hacked email plus? <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one thing that's interesting is just the Yahoo brand, which has been so neglected over the years. And especially after Verizon took over, they just didn't do much 
to keep it going. I mean, it's sort of going on its own, but um, you know, once one of the Yahoo once was in the position of Google, you know, it was like AOL and Yahoo in the early days, and now it's Google and Facebook. Uh, that can they revive the brand? You know, it'll be interesting, sort of as a case study. And then the other one is that David, we we just talked about a few minutes ago, was the idea of now in this first party data world, they, they have uh, Verizon has a really interesting trove of email addresses and cell phone numbers and so, user locations and right massive amounts of user data that is and then you know and they have an isp also which sort of adds in there too yeah and they still have you know as we were talking about earlier as well they still have a handful of very compelling consumer properties of which i'm an active user for four months a year uh in the fantasy football world so right. i you know it's they're <laughs> I think it, I think Yahoo has turned out to be a very good buy uh, for Verizon. Um, whether or not they saw this death of the third-party cookie coming, or it's sort of worked out in their favor, but I, I do think uh, that Yahoo is still clearly very much an asset that can be leveraged to great effect by by Verizon. It'll be interesting to see if the name can ever be burnished once again to take on some patina of respectability. I mean, in my mind, it is so associated with hacked emails and, you know, old people not knowing how to use email, et cetera, that I just, I have a hard time thinking about it in any respect, res, respectful way. Well, it, 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 you know, if you think about how many brands are there online, sort of true internet brands, you know, there aren't that many that you can name off the top of your head and Yahoo is one of them. That's true. And so... Although you asked the other day, when's eBay going to go away? I mean, yeah, that's yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I, I am amazed by eBay's sort of survival. It's the number two e-commerce company, according to the piece we did today. And, um, you know, this is a digression, but I, I'm really surprised that eBay has hung on as it has, you know. But um, it'll be interesting to see whether Yahoo can can as a brand sort of reclaim its former position, certainly as an advertising context, it's going to, it, it, it is going to be a powerful. Well, the, 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 the Yahoo portal was over monetized. They just crammed way too much, too much advertising into it. They could clean that up, um, really make that a better user experience. And then they could do a campaign on behalf of Yahoo and, it's possible that they could revive the brand. You know, I mean, I think they're going to have to do something like that if they want to push all these subscription products, you know, other than at the installed base of the fantasy football players or the Yahoo Finance. And, and then again, and could, also, and, go ahead. It, could, it could just show up as bloatware on Verizon phones. Uh, unfortunately, that may turn out to be the case. <laughs> yeah, David, what were you going to say? I was just going to say they also have uh, it's not just fantasy content, right? It is uh, Yahoo Sports is also a very right. popular portal. They have one of the top NBA reporters, uh, right. Chris Haynes, who breaks all kinds of, of terrific inter player interviews and GM interviews and all that stuff. So I think that they have a, you know, theoretically, they're pretty well positioned as a horizontal content play, as well as a couple of deep, deep vertical sort of expertise in product. And yeah, Yahoo News used to be really good too. I mean, there was a lot of really good content and good, you know, on Yahoo News. Um, and, you know, they have all these, these, these media properties, although I can't name them off the top of my head. I mean, the AOL stuff, all the AOL stuff. So they could funnel that into behind a Yahoo News brand that would be kind of interesting as well. Okay, we're out of time. 
for this week. Any final thoughts or self-promotional comments you want to make? Not necessarily. Uh, I'll say thank you to the folks at Cinda who hosted me for a, a product sort of roundtable discussion earlier this week. So thank you, Cinda, for that. Uh, we, we do still have two events coming up that multi multiple of us are involved with, Local U Advanced, as well as the Street Fight Summit. So take a look at both of those if you're interested in more great local and digital content. Okay. And Mike, nothing to add there? Nothing to add. Okay, so everybody have a great weekend. Um, read and subscribe to the Near Memo, and we will be back next week at the same time with more scintillating, provocative, and controversial remarks, as always. Okay. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.